today we continue in our series through the book of Mark, and I know some of you just looked down at your watch and then thought, how in the world? <laughs> we're we're going to do our best. It's a shorter message this morning, but uh, the last time we were in Mark, we looked at chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. This morning we're going to look at the midsection of the chapter, verses 7 through 19, and the title of the message this morning is Chosen and Sent. Uh, but before we go into the scripture, let me go to the Lord in prayer for us. And with us. God, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for all the things that we've heard and seen already. God, now we come to the service where we open your word and we ask you to speak to us in all wisdom and all truth, to give us an understanding of you and ourselves. And so, God, we open our hearts and minds to receive from you and also to be ready to respond to you this morning. Would you take a minute and pray for the person in front of you or behind you or beside you that they would hear from the Lord this morning? Speak to us, we pray, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Mark chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 7 through 12. Mark chapter 3. Verses 7 through 12. If you don't have your Bibles, the words should be on the screen. It says this, that Jesus withdrew to the sea with his disciples. And a great multitude from Galilee followed, and also from Judea, from Jerusalem, and from Edomia, and beyond the Jordan, the vicinity of Tyre and Sidon. And a great number of people heard all that he was doing and came to him. And he told his disciples that a boat should stand ready, for him because of the crowd, so that they would not crowd him. For he had healed many, with the result that all those who had afflictions pressed upon him, around him, in order to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they would fall down before him and shout, You are the Son of God. And he earnestly warned them not to tell who he was. First thing I want to look at this morning is this idea, an act of Jesus, of withdrawing that it's worth a withdrawal. Verse 7 says this, that Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the lake. After, after verse 6 in Mark chapter 3, there's a break in the story from the synagogue community and organized Judaism in general. And what the platform was, was the synagogue has now become a place of rejection. If you remember, almost every time we see Jesus in the synagogue and up until now, there's always been this clash, there's always been this battle, this conflict. The place where you were to come around the word of God and Jesus now became a place of ridicule and questioning and deception and it became tragic. Jesus will only appear in the synagogue once more in Mark's gospel and that's in chapter 6. After that time, Mark mentions the synagogue only as places of struggle, for places of prestige for the Pharisees and where his followers will face rejection. From now on, Jesus' synagogue, which uh, literally means gathering place, will be a house, a seashore, the wilderness, a boat, wherever people will gather around him. In some regards, Jesus is decentralizing the synagogue and moving into the streets. And if you think about Mark's community, this could have been a refreshing thing for Mark's community. Because maybe many felt that if they were under such rules in the synagogue, they wouldn't be invited in, or they wouldn't be able to keep up. And many, 
in our community may feel the same way. That if they knew about me, what I know about me, I don't think they would let me in because I don't fit with all their rules and regulations inside. And so it has to be an encouragement to Mark's community, and it's a great encouragement for our community when the church moves out of the building into the streets. And that's what's happening with Jesus. The community was not only experiencing Jesus and the healings and the teachings, they were also experiencing for the first time someone that was standing up to the Pharisees and not being uh, arrested or feeling like they're breaking the law. In fact, Jesus was fulfilling the law. So it had to be in the Mark's community this exciting, confusing, hopeful, and curious time. But this movement of decentralizing the impact of the synagogue did not go well for the Pharisees. Most commentators believe that the Pharisees were not as upset or angered about Jesus' principles or teaching because he used their law, he was just fulfilling it. What they were more upset was is that they were taking the attention away from him, of them, and their potential losses. Now, if you look in verses 1 through 6 of chapter 3, you'll notice that the disciples aren't mentioned. And now in verse 7, they are mentioned, and they follow Jesus out to the sea. And no matter how much Jesus tries to avoid it, his popularity is increasing, the ministry is expanding, and people are hearing about it, and they're all wanting to come and be with Jesus, to possibly be touched by Jesus. Again, this does not sit well with the Pharisees because the popularity of Jesus is rising and the Pharisees' popularity is decreasing. But since it was not time for Jesus to become so tangled up with the Pharisees and religious leaders yet, it says that Scripture says that he withdrew to the lake. Now, over the past couple of weeks, we've looked at how Jesus was going head-to-head with the religious leaders, and you have to ask, your, have to ask yourself this question, why now does he want to withdraw and not go to battle with them? Matthew 12, 14, and 15 says this. It gives a little bit more specific account. It says, But the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. Aware of this, Jesus withdrew from that place. So Jesus is knowing that the Pharisees are plotting on how they might kill him. He was aware of this. But it's important to note. Jesus left and withdrew not based on fear not based on this idea that he was scared of the Pharisees or that that he was worried or that he was uncertain or that he was somehow admitting defeat. It simply means that he was withdrawing because his time simply had not yet come. It wasn't time. Throughout Mark, you see this pattern. You see this confrontation and then this withdrawal. This confrontation and then with withdrawal. We've already seen it in Mark chapter 1. He left the house and went away to a secluded place. In fact, in Mark, in his 16 chapters, Mark says that Jesus did this 11 different times in order to escape his enemies, to pray in solitude, to rest, for private conference with his disciples. And all these 11 occasions, Mark shows us Jesus going to the mountain, to the wilderness, or to the sea in order to get away, to lose the distractions, to gain perspective, the opportunity to intently hear 
and be with his father to reaffirm his plan and purpose. It was an example for the disciples and for us to pull away for a time with God. The crowds were coming, and verse 9 said this, Because the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding from him. Let me ask you a question. When the pressures of life, when the struggles, when the demands, when even the dangers of life come, do you have for yourself a boat that is ready to get away, to withdraw? A few weeks ago, we talked about fasting, putting aside things, to intently listen to our Father, to gain perspective, to understand His plan and purpose. Even in the midst of it, do you have a boat ready? There's a practical application there to withdraw, to fast from the ordinary so you can focus more intently on the extraordinary of God. Now, this morning, I want to finish this morning with two points from verses 13 through 19. After this time uh, uh, in the boat, verse 13 says this, And he went up on the mountain and summoned those whom he himself wanted. And they came to him, and he appointed twelve, so that they would be with him, and that he could send them out to preach and have the, opportunity, have the authority to cast out demons. And he appointed the twelve, Simon, who he gave the name Peter, and James and John, son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James. To them he gave the sons Boangers, which means sons of thunder, and Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus. Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed him. I want to take a look at this word summon. Jesus summons them. Verse 13 says, He went up on the mountain and summoned those he himself wanted, and they came to him. Verse 13 has this word summon. It's an interesting word. It's the word that means this, to call on someone to do something specific to call for the presence of, to call or notify someone to appear before you, and to call into action. So Jesus summons or calls these twelve to come forth and do something specific and to move into action. And he calls them for two primary purposes. Verses 14 and 15, which we'll look at this verse, these two verses a number of times. He appointed the twelve so that, he, that they would be with him, and that he could send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. The first one is this. He says he summons them to be with him. To be with him. To be with Jesus is probably the most profound mystery when it comes to being a disciple. To be with Jesus. But there first must be a time of preparation in private before there is a preaching in public. There must be a time of preparation in private before there is to be a preaching or a proclamation in public. We must spend time with him before we move out as God's representatives. It's been said that discipleship is a relationship before it is a task. A who before a what. These twelve and you and I are called to be with Jesus identify with his life, his manners, his understanding, his doctrine, and to know him with all fullness, to be with him before they are sent to preach. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever tried 
to describe something to someone that you've not first experienced it firsthand? Or have you heard somebody describe something that they've experienced firsthand and see the difference between what you've described and what they've described? It reminds me of this brilliant example of trying to taste someone's food, especially when you've been out ordered at a restaurant. Especially if you've never tried their food before. Now, this is going to be brilliant. You're going to try this at lunch. But I'm going to give you a three-step approach to getting a bite of someone else's food. Are you ready? You're at lunch, you're at dinner, you're having a meal, and the first question you ask is this. What are you eating? You talk about it a little bit. And the second question comes up and you say, well, is it good? They may say, yeah. Third question, you ready? What does it taste like? Now, let me just tell you, if they start describing what it tastes like, you're not getting a bite of their food. And it's really important that if you don't get a bite, you would never be able to describe the flavor and texture and the experience firsthand. Psalm 38, 4 says this, Taste and see that the Lord is good. How can we taste from a distance? How can we experience Him unless we're with Him? If not, we will be trying to describe something that somebody else has experienced. And Jesus says, I call you, I summon you to be with me before you go out. Now Jesus says something that's pretty profound here. He says this, Jesus chose in verse 13 and 14 and 15 those whom he wanted. And he wants you too. Let that sink in for a second. That God wants me. That Jesus desires me to be with him. I heard a new song this week by Matthew West entitled, Me on Your Mind. If you get a chance to look it up, I would encourage you to. It's a song that talks about how God and Jesus, the direction and desires of their action was for me because I'm on their mind. That he wants me. That I'm wanted. It's a powerful thought when you think about it in regards to identity and security. That the God of the universe wants me. And you may be thinking, there is no way Jesus would want me. There's no way he would want me, especially to fulfill his work. And if that is you, we need to take a look at this list of who Jesus picked for his first 12 again. And we'll do that in just a minute. But Jesus chooses you, not in the future, not when you think you're ready, not when you get all cleaned up, not when you get your Bible knowledge down. He chooses you now to follow him to be his disciple. There was no special qualifications about these 12 guys. Only two things. They were attracted to Jesus to be with him, and they had courage to follow him. And notice the climate around Jesus. He was methodically crashing the rules and regulations of the Pharisees. He was going head-to-head with the religious leaders. 
He was branded a heretic, a sinner, and had a plot against his life. And they followed him. Why? Because he wanted them. One writer said this about their courage to follow him. We see them following their leader out into the unknown, not knowing very clearly who he is or why they are doing it or where he is likely to lead them. But just magnetized by him, fascinated and gripped and held by something irresistible in the soul of him, laughed at by friends, plotted against by foes, without, with doubt sometimes growing clamorous in their own hearts until they almost wish that they were out of this whole business together, but still clinging to him coming through the ruin of their hopes to a better loyalty, it is worth watching them, for we too may catch the infection of their spirit and fall into step with Jesus. Jesus had a call in their lives, and that's what we see in verses 14 through 19. Now, if you stop and notice just for a second, you'll see that Jesus started Christianity with a very mixed group of guys. Some have been called, have called them a ragtag group of men. Four of them were fishermen. One, a hated tax collector. Another, a member of a radical and violent political party. Two sets of brothers. And one that will eventually betray him. You have to marvel that Jesus chose two men with apparently opposite political convictions. A zealot and a Roman tax collector for the membership of this intimate group. And likewise, you have to marvel at his choice of the unbelieving and disloyal Judas Iscariot. Six of them we know practically nothing about. All were laymen. And here's another brilliant thing to maybe ease your mind. There was not a preacher or an expert in the scriptures in the whole bunch. Yet it was these men that Jesus established his church and his good news spread to the end of the earth. In fact, we are here today because of their work. Because of Jesus' work in and through them. One commentator said this, the twelve will be apprenticed in Jesus' presence so that they will be his representatives in his absence. Two things, to be present with Jesus, and then there's a future to carry out the task that Jesus wants them to do. There's a great and familiar phrase that says this, God does not call the qualified, but he qualifies the called. In verse 14, the NIV says that he appointed the twelve, but the Greek literally says that he made the twelve. It's actually the same Hebrew word that you see in Genesis 1 when he says that God made the heavens and earth. It's what he creates in us. It's not about what we do for him. Discipleship does not consist in what disciples can do for Christ, but what Christ can make in us as disciples. And at the end of verse 14 and 15, we see that Jesus equipped these 12 chosen with two things. Jesus equips his disciples with his message and with his power. The twelve are sent by Jesus specifically to preach, which means to proclaim, and to also drive out, to have authority to drive out demons. The Greek word preach here is this word to publicly announce, this proclamation. We see it in John, uh, John chapter 1, verse 14. But it's said from an overflow of being with him. 
You and I are equipped with the message of Jesus in our hearts so that we may proclaim it. And Jesus has also given us his power through the Holy Spirit to do that which he has summoned and called us to do. All these guys were so different. Each had individual influences and worlds that they could impact. Would you do me a favor and just turn to the person beside you and say, you are really different. And also turn to them and say, and Jesus really wants you. The person beside you has a whole different world of opportunities and impact and influence that you will never have. So it's important for all of us, all of us individually and differently to respond to the summons and the call of Jesus. I want to close with a couple of questions. The first one is this. Do you accept and believe that God has chosen you? What does your mind and heart do? Where does it go when you think that Jesus wants me? I think one of the most crucial and influential places for a believer needs to be a time of withdrawing to get a clear perspective, a clear understanding that Jesus summons you because he wants you. Not because of you and your performance or your lack of performance, but what he sees in you that he can make. The second question is this. Are you spending time with him so that you can genuinely minister and talk about him? Do you have a boat ready to withdraw, to really taste and see that the Lord is good for you personally so that your message will have consistency, that your character will be trusted, and that your message will be clear, both in your words and your actions? Are you spending time with him that you may genuinely minister to others? Are you ready and willing to be sent out? Verse 14 and 15, he appointed the twelve so that they would be with him and that he could send them out to preach and to have authority. We have to understand this, church, that it's an exciting thing when the church leaves the building. Because when we leave, we know we're wanted, that we've been summoned, that we've been called, that we've been chosen, and we've been gifted with a message and with power for his glory. Let me pray for us. God, thanks so much for these words. Thank you for this account of Jesus and his disciples. God, I pray for each of us here to withdraw, to get our boats ready, to withdraw with you, to hear us, to hear you say to us that you want us, that we're summoned, that we're chosen, we're called and that we're equipped with your message personally because we've tasted and seen that you are good and that you give us power to proclaim that truth to others. We trust you with that in Jesus' name. Amen.
Let's stand together.